Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 32, and we'll read through verse 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priests, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Let's pray. Our Father, speak to us today from Your Word. The words of the preacher are unimportant where Your Word is not lifted up. We need to hear from Your Spirit today. Speak to us in our deepest parts. Speak to us in our very souls. Speak to us in that place where our actions are born, where our beliefs are held, where our very selves lie hidden. That is who we need changed. That is who needs to be brought into your sanctification each and every day. And so, Lord, teach us as we open your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today we see the arrival of Ezra's caravan to Jerusalem. Now, as happy as you may be to get to that point in Ezra, they were even happier. Last week, we looked at God's faithfulness along the journey. That faithfulness that made it an uneventful journey. And this week we reach the culmination of everything Ezra has been working toward since the beginning of the seventh chapter of this book, the return to Jerusalem. They brought God's people to their home. They brought treasures to the temple as offerings, not only from the Jews who remained in Babylonia, but also from the king of Persia himself, Now you, I trust, recall that Ezra, we talked about several weeks ago, had divided that massive treasure among the 24 priests and Levites for the care of the treasure along the route. And I would bring to your recollection the charge that Ezra gave these men when they received that portion of the trust of God's treasure that is found in verse 29 of chapter 8. He told them, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. In the passage today, we see the fulfillment of that promise. We will begin looking at verse 32, however, and we see in verse 32 that succinct statement, we came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. 
We'll not spend a great deal of time on that simple sentence, but I would like to mention one thing here in regard to biblical interpretation. Several commentators I read tried to make parallels of this three-day period to other three-day periods in other parts of Scripture. They talked about Joshua's three days of waiting before crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land that we find in Joshua chapter 3, verse 2. We, they talked of the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. There were even some who accused Ezra of being superstitious since he began the journey with three days of preparation at the Ahava Canal. Now the warning I would give you this morning is to be wary of parallels in the Scripture that the Scriptures do not themselves make evident. I'll confess here that there may be something in the three days here in verse 32 that I may need to explore in the future. But it seems to me quite reasonable that in three days... It took them three days to get 5,000 people in a caravan that could have extended five miles or more along the trail just to get settled in in Jerusalem. It seems perfectly reasonable that during those three days they would have to seek provisions for their families in the city of Jerusalem that was barely rebuilt. It seems reasonable that it might take three days to ensure that he knew the location of all 24 priests and Levites. And it seems quite reasonable that in three days, he had to arrange with the temple officers the weighing of the treasures that were brought. In fact, when I put it that way, three days seems quite speedy in completing all those errands. I cannot imagine putting together an event that would affect 5,000 people or more in only three days. All that to say, Ezra probably records three days here simply because it took three days to do all this. Not because Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale or some other parallel that really doesn't have a parallel at all. Don't be led astray by those who would tell you that they found secret codes or otherwise unrelated parallels in Scripture to give them a special insight. We have trouble enough with the plain teaching of Scripture. We do well to focus our attention on those things the Spirit has explicitly stated rather than trying to match numbers and signs. And while we are on the subject, that would also extend to those people who sell lots of materials telling us that they know when Jesus is going to return. If God had intended for any of us to know the date or the time, He would have revealed it. Time and again in Scripture, we are told to concentrate on our lives, our faith, our obedience until that day. Pray for it, certainly. But it's entirely improper for that to be our consuming curiosity. Paul told the Thessalonians in his first epistle to them at the beginning of the fifth chapter, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, 
You have no need of anything to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Many in that Thessalonian church were consumed with speculation about the day of the Lord. But Paul tells them, I have nothing to tell you and you don't need to know. Perhaps when you read the phrase, you have no need to have anything written to you, perhaps you thought it meant that they already knew when that was going to happen. Like when I warned my child, I don't have to tell you what will happen if you do such and such. Anybody ever said that in here? But the second verse tells us that that's not what he's saying here because he tells them that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Everything else in the paragraph following that is telling them to be vigilant in anticipation of that day. Verse 6 telling them to keep awake and be sober. The modern church, as the church has been throughout the centuries, is constantly assailed by controversies the enemy intends to distract us from the mission we are to complete for God's glory. We dare not allow ourselves to be drawn completely into these quarrels and controversies when the heart of biblical doctrine is not at stake. Believe Jesus is returning. Leave the the date and time up to Him. But there are at any time hundreds of pretenders who claim to have hidden knowledge of the great secrets of God. Now please hear me when I say, the plain reading of Scripture is all the revelation you will ever need for the purpose and instruction of God. The plain meaning of Scripture is entirely reliable. The plain meaning of Scripture is complete without error in its purpose. It is sufficient in its content to lead us through the mediation of the Spirit into salvation and into sanctification. The sum total of everything you need to know to find Jesus and thus gain heaven is contained in its pages. Looking back to our passage in Ezra today, We look in the very next verse, the listing of four men in the temple who received that massive offering that had been sent. The priests, Merimoth and Eleazar, and the Levites, Jazabad and Noadiah. And before I leave today the subject of the reliability of Scripture, please allow me to point out that the Scripture is quite specific. Over and over, Scripture names names, establishes timelines, and provides verifiable evidence as to its undeniable reliability. Here in Ezra, we are given four men who could have been checked. Three of them appear not only here, but also in the book of Nehemiah under completely different circumstances. But all throughout Scripture, we see God telling us that at a particular time, at a particular place, in a particular place in the history of mankind, He has acted. You could look at the birth of Jesus during the reign of Augustus Caesar. 
And Luke even pinpoints that date further in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Pinpointed. We know that the crucifixion occurred in the nine-year period of the governorship of Pontius Pilate. We see Paul testifying before a different governor, Felix, and then Festus. We see his first testimony while Ananias was the high priest. I could give you example after example of the specificity of Scripture. We can be certain of its reliability. Truth has nothing to fear from accuracy and detail. And that brings us to our main point this morning, the accounting of the treasure. Ezra had told the trustees of the treasure that this day would come, hadn't he? We talked about it at the beginning. He had, in fact, told them exactly how he expected it to play out. Recall Ezra 8.29 when he told them, Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. We look at that verse in verse 29 and we see what Ezra expected when he walked in Jerusalem. He's carrying literally tons of silver and gold. He is coming in with 5,000 Jewish people to repopulate the countryside, to bring God's people home. He expected it to be lauded. He expected to see all the chief priests and all the Levites and the heads of the leading families coming out to see these returning family members. I think we get a hint of what will follow in the remainder of the book of Ezra when we notice this. That where Ezra expected the chief priests, he got two priests and neither of them was even the high priest. Where he expected an outpouring of the Levites, he got two to help carry all those goods into the treasury. And where he expected the heads of the houses of Israel, he got crickets. Expecting to be met with a throng, he was met by a committee. Not a single head of a family showed up to the witness the great provision of God. Even the chief priests ignored the blessing that God had wrought in this very journey. They had come 900 miles carrying tons of silver and gold through risky paths. And the priesthood sent a couple of bean counters to receive it. Remember this in the coming weeks when we see the state of Israel when Ezra arrived. 
regardless of the lack of fanfare, or the apathy of the priests, or the complete uncaring of the houses of Israel, Ezra and his trustees were faithful. Your faithfulness does not depend on anyone else. They delivered that massive treasure to the treasure to the keeping of the temple, and it was duly weighed and recorded. That day that they had been warned about had indeed arrived, and they would be discharged of their trust. They would have delivered exactly what they had been called to do. And it didn't matter what anybody on the outside had done. Please hear me, whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, there will be for you a similar day of reckoning. There is a day coming. We saw it earlier in Matthew 25. We saw it earlier in Ezekiel as we read it. The day of the Lord where we will all stand and give an account of our lives and our conduct. We will all appear before the judgment seat. And it makes no difference whether you're sitting here now doubting that that day will ever come, expecting that after your death you will simply pass into oblivion as the chemicals of your body return to the dust of the ground. It doesn't matter even if you cannot possibly believe now that you will stand before the Almighty, Holy Creator of everything. You will. Whether you believe it or not. And if you do not believe that you will, that day will indeed be terrible for you. You will not be judged by how much better you were than someone else. You will not be judged on the basis of the good things you did outweighing the bad things you did. You will be judged by the righteous judge in complete and perfect justice and you have no chance at all on that day to pass out of torment. The only hope that any of us has is to be found in Christ, to be a follower of Him. Not just somebody who believes that He existed, but someone who loves Him. And obeys Him. Someone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Made into a new creation in Jesus Christ. The world is filled with people who will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and following. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't get lost in those miraculous things in that passage that they are claiming to have done. Pay attention to Jesus' response. Even if they claim to have preached in His name, even if they 
claimed to have performed miracles in His name. They never repented of their sins and followed Him. If you were not a follower of Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, you have no hope for eternal life without Him. All your good works, all your good intentions, all the miraculous things you may think you have done count for nothing on that day. Because only by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ through the sacrifice He provided can we be good enough to stand before our holy God. His goodness is the only goodness that is sufficient to cleanse you from your sin. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 tell us, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I solemnly warn you on the authority of the Word of God that if you are not found in Jesus Christ on that day, you will spend eternity in hell. A place so terrible that it is described as eternal fire that torments and never ends. I pray that none hearing me today would ever hear that final command of Jesus telling you to depart from Him. Come to Him today. Leave your sin and follow Him right now. Right here is the time you know you have. Don't wait another minute. Don't even wait for me to finish preaching to cry out to God in prayer to save you. If you finish this life without following Him, the day of the Lord will be only darkness and terror and horror. A horror that lasts forever. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, however, you can anticipate that exact same day with joy and anticipation. And considering this great day of accounting from the point of view of the trustees, the great commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, it is a great ease to one's mind to be discharged from a trust. And a great honor to one's name to be able to make it apparent that it has been faithfully discharged. The faithful in Jesus Christ, those who follow Him, have nothing to fear from that judgment day. They have nothing to fear from the scales that weighed out the silver and the gold. They have nothing to fear from the scales that say, if there is any sin found in you, you are not worthy to enter His kingdom because we know that all of our sin has been taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ and there is no more sin on us. 
We have only His righteousness. Our hope is completely in Him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know you rely on the truth of our Lord's words when He said in John 3, 17 and 18, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That is the difference between standing and falling on that final day. That is the difference between standing and looking into the face of a loving Father or looking into the face of a terrible judge. The only thing that separates you is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, you know that following that day, you will be with the Lord forever. The burden of sin will be removed and the results of sin, death and sickness and decay will be gone forever. And that is why the church, since Jesus ascended into heaven, has been crying out, come quickly. For the follower of Jesus Christ, there's nothing terrible about that day. It is a day of promise, a day of reward, a day of peace, and a day of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, You are great and You are awesome. Your holiness shames us when we are in our sin. But God, You have sent Your Son into this world to save people. Not to condemn them. That wasn't the purpose that Jesus came. He came that we might be saved through Him. We thank You that You have called us. You have raised us up. You have regenerated us. And You have brought us to know that gift of Jesus Christ. But I pray that if anyone is hearing my voice today, that Your Spirit would be heavy on them here. To bring them to repentance. To bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. To cling to Him and cry out, Save me! Because God, You are the only one who can save us. Teach us to give up our self-righteousness to give up our striving after place or after reputation 
lead us to cry for your mercy and your grace and your sanctification. Teach us each day how to be more conformed to your image. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will return and His feet will be on this earth once again. We pray. Amen.